Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals at Ryu Hotels and Resorts in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America, and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and E. Jean Carroll vows to do something good with Trump's $83.3 million. We have such a great show today. The Financial Times' John Byrne Murdoch talks to us about the unexpected reasons society may be declining. He's so interesting. He's one of my favorite guests. Then we'll talk to the New York Times' Nick Confessori about his amazing investigation into the right wing's mission to destroy DEI. But first we have the host of The Enemies List, the one, the only, the Lincoln Project's own, Rick Wilson. Welcome. It is Monday. And the only way to start your week is with one, Rick Wilson. Welcome, Rick Wilson. Good morning, Molly. How are you? You know, I don't owe anyone $83 million. You know, I don't owe anyone $83 million either. And I find that that is a number I would like to keep it that way. So all weekend, you and I have spent uh, gloating, I think, quietly gloating about this incredible verdict where now Donald Trump is, for the first time ever, I feel like, held responsible for a sexual misconduct, right? Yep. She's not the only accuser. There have been numerous. It has now been adjudicated twice that he lied and therefore defamed her. There was enough evidence to say that he is a guy who has committed sexual assault. I mean, call me crazy, but I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want that on my resume, but you know. 
Yeah. I mean, he did brag about that in the Access Hollywood tape. It's not that he's that hesitant about it. Oh, no. Look, he is he's not some blushing guy who's ashamed that he's rapey. Right. That great piece you wrote about the women of, of E. Jean and your mom's generation who have been through so much of this shit, who in that weird gap between sexual liberation and today, there's and they, been a lot of ugly shit in the way or along the way. They did not grow up sexually liberated. They grew up sexually That's what terrified. Yeah. And I think about my mom telling me these stories about men doing things to her that where she was like, I just, I just smiled and, you know, was like, I mean, the kind of treatment she had in grad school. Right. I believe it. It was hard for me to believe, but I knew it was true because it matches with all of these other women's experience in the 1950s and 60s. And the thing about it is, and I keep going back to this, he came into court treating it like it was just one other Trump bullshit rally. He came into court thinking, I'm just going to show my ass enough. I'm going to do my Trump performance art enough. And that'll change the facts on the ground here. That'll change what I did to her That'll unring the bell on the same charges a jury of New Yorkers had previously determined that he had done. That's the thing to me that I love what happened here because, you know, it showed for once, you know, you can't like pretend that you're on the pages of Breitbart or Truth Social and hope that it hope that it alters an outcome where where your behavior, that the, the kind of behavior that you've been charged with of being abusive to women is is playing out in front of the jury's faces. You know, it just blows me away. The fundamental problem here is that candidate Trump thought he could use his legal challenges, 91 counts criminally and his civil cases, fundraising, but also his rally, right? That yeah. He would give these speeches and it would help him. But the problem for him, and you saw this, in uh, the trial this week was, you know, here he is bragging about what a billionaire he is. Good for candidate Trump, not so good for defendant Trump. This weekend we went through and as you know, my fiance is exceptional at math for all the reasons that we we know because of her work. She's exceptional at math. We were doing some back of the envelope calculations and given how leveraged he is financially, given how deep in the weeds he is financially with everything being mortgaged to the hilt, he's going to have to sell something and probably pretty fast. Remember, Trump has another financial problem, which is this civil trial, which could be a hundred million uh-huh. plus, maybe two hundred million. Maybe I think it may be two thirty, where he is going to have to sell things quickly. But I think the thing that I want to just take a minute to talk about here, which we haven't talked so much about, is this number is because of defamation. This number is so high because he could not stop defaming her. He couldn't shut up long enough to go into court. He couldn't hire a law firm that he didn't want to fuck. And look, let's just be really blunt. This Haba woman is now, in my mind, like single white female. She's this imitator of Melania's look and all this other weird shit. But if you look at the videos and the photos, almost all of his aides look like young Melania. Of course. He has a type. He has a thing. But the fact that you would put your financial future at risk because you want to hit it with your lawyer instead of hiring some junkyard dog son of a bitch lawyer out there. But of course, I mean, I know he can't afford that anymore. The risks he puts himself in over and over and over again because of his dumb childlike ego, it just blows me away. 
And look, we know now what it means to vote for Trump. It means you're going to vote for somebody who is an adjudicated sexual assaulter, somebody who raped E. Jean Carroll in a goddamn dressing room, who juries have examined every scrap of evidence that there is out there twice now and said, you know, Donald, you did this and we know you did it. As you and I both know from writing about Trump world and living in Trump world and basically from 2016 to 2020, our whole world was Trump world. Trump is big into defamation. He's big into claiming he'll sue for defamation. Right. I would like to point out that in my case, it is 507 days as of today since Trump went on a a rant saying he was going to sue me and the Lincoln Project for defamation. How'd that work out for you, Donnie? Because he hasn't done a damn thing. Right. So he likes to say he's going to sue for defamation, but he also likes to defame. And oh, that yeah. this number is so high because they made a calculation that was this was how it would be re- the reputational harm, right? Like the harm of like hundreds of death threats in her email, having to have security, the fear she has. I mean, she sleeps with a loaded gun. These are the things that you cannot necessarily put a cash value on. This New York City jury did that. Yep. By the way, this New York City jury, which had to stay anonymous for their own safety. Right. As the judge is saying to them, I recommend you never reveal your name in public. That's not because he thinks that they should be discreet, y'all. That's because he thinks they're going to get murdered by Trumpers. And look, I got swatted two weeks ago. Nikki Haley got swatted last night. These people believe that anybody that opposes Trump is an enemy who should be killed. And she's going to always have to live with that. I'm, I, I hate that for her. And it's terrible. I want to like pull back and talk about defamation yeah, course, for course, one more minute, because you'll notice that, again, you are the creator of the everything Trump touches dies maxim. And I want to pull back and talk about one Rudy Giuliani. Who has a monthly income now of two thousand three hundred and eight dollars <laughs> and seven hundred and sixty one dollars in his checking account, according to his that's his bankruptcy filing. So Rudy Giuliani was, quote unquote, you you worked for him. He was Many America's years. mayor. He had a bright New York City future. Now he owes Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss mm-hmm. about a gazillion dollars. Let's talk about that. They are election workers. This is a man who, when we were when we were like warming up for the 2008 campaign, was worth on paper around two hundred million dollars because of the value of Giuliani partners and all this other stuff. He needed both ego and money at the beginning of the Trump era. And so he's so he so he supported Trump starting in 2016. The last time we talked was the end of 2016. I told him he will screw you. He will fuck you over. This will go badly. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. You can come back from from where you're at right now. You can rebuild. And I was told, go fuck yourself, basically. More polite than that, honestly, but but it was pretty much go fuck yourself. And that was the last time we talked. And we, used, we I used to talk to the guy shit constantly for years, constantly. You know, I worked for him for a long, long time. I was one of the few people that would say, hey, fuck off. Stop doing stupid shit. And once in a while, he would listen to me. And now he is a guy who is just about to be homeless process that for a mm-hmm. second. In Florida, he's not going to lose his condo because bankruptcy protects your primary residence. Right. He's going right, to lose right. everything else he has. He's going to lose every other penny that ever comes into his wallet for the rest of his life is going to disappear. 
Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And Ruby Freeman, let us just pause for a minute. She is the election worker and she and her mother both worked in elections. They were defamed by Rudy. Their lives were made terrifying and terrible. It was the same thing as E. Jean, right? Yeah. And ultimately, again, what I think is the most interesting thing about this whole situation is that Rudy could not stop defaming them and continued to defame them. And here's the thing. The irony of Trump always talks about defaming people, always talks about, or always defames people, always talks about suing people for defamation. When it has happened now to, to him and to Rudy, it took a really gigantic impact financially because he's actually shut the hell up over the weekend. He has not been doing it over the weekend. And as much as I find him, as I find it amusing to taunt him, I think he finally understood he doesn't have the cash to do this. He doesn't have the ability to raise the cash to pay this right now. He's in a very tight spot and I'm here for it. He bought every bit of this on himself. Hey, nobody else's fault but him. So let's talk about what I think is pretty interesting. Here we are. Republicans now have this problem. They have a candidate quality problem. <laughs> you know, candidate quality used to be the rule of everything we did in the party. And, and you know who the king of that was? Mitch McConnell. You know why he was the king of that? Because after we had the Palin experience in 2010, and then we got wiped out in 2012 because- <laughs> the Palin the, experience. The, the Palin <laughs> experience. Although I will say this, you look at the people now in the Republican Party, and it makes the Palins look like Downton Abbey. It's true. But long story short, we have this thing with candidate quality that McConnell, after 2012, and said, we will never do that shit again. We will recruit great candidates. We will. And it was a rule that people in the party really said, this is a pretty smart idea. Let's do this. Let's do it this way. Well, how'd that work out for us? Because now what we have is a commitment to mostly the worst possible candidate. Trump is one of the worst possible candidates you could imagine. He is a broken and corrupt and degenerate weirdo. And everything that the party is defined by is obedience to the corrupt, broken, degenerate weirdo. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that there aren't people that like that, because there clearly are. In 2020 at the Lincoln Project, we developed this thing called the Bannon Line. The, law, the story of how it got that name is, is not the point right now. But Back then, but depending on the state you were in, it was between three and eight percent of Republican voters could be persuaded away from Trump. Well, since Dobbs and one six and some other things, that number has grown to be between seven and eleven percent. I'm going to make an argument that things like E. Jean Carroll and this this verdict are going to make it an even larger number, especially among women voters. And you know what? Couldn't happen to a shittier human being than Donald Trump, and he deserves it. And that number is going to expand, and I think you're going to see. Women in this country, even the people in the Democratic side, the progressive side, aren't like, oh, I don't like everything Biden does. They're going to look at the at, at the fact that you're making a choice now, not between Joe Biden and Donald Trump or not between Joe Biden and a Republican, but Joe Biden and a guy who's been now adjudicated twice to have committed sexual assault. Even Republican women, even Trumpy oriented women, I think are going to say, you know, I don't think this is for me. And we're going to try to help them do that. Because I think it is an argument that can be made to a lot of these folks who ordinarily, you know, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't ever consider voting for Joe Biden, but they may now consider that they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. 
Yeah. So it's funny because it's like I was talking to George Conway last week about this before the judgment came down. We were talking and he said, you know, it could be as much as a hundred million dollars. And I thought, there's no way. You're like, nah, thought, bro. <laughs> I thought it's nice that you're so invested in this. And I appreciate that you got her to Robbie Kaplan, who is this incredible lawyer. I mean, this is like a really, I think, interesting important point. Like Robbie Kaplan was not some unknown parking lawyer who E. Jean hired because she looked like right. one of the, you know. didn't look at Robbie Kaplan and go, ooh, man candy, I want this one to, to take my case. She said, I'm going to find a son of a bitch. <laughs> right. Well, and also she, I'm going to find the woman who argued the defense of merit, you know, who ended the terrible anti-LGBTQ rules about marriage in this country in front of the Supreme Court. So this is a woman who has really been a champion for what is right for a long time. You know, I thought for sure George was being a little bit overly optimistic when he said 100 million. And there was something about when that verdict came down where I couldn't believe the feelings I had about it, even though this has nothing to do with me. There was a feeling that Donald Trump, a woman of a certain age, a woman Donald Trump's own age, right? Donald Trump married to someone who was in her 50s, but a woman Donald Trump's own age, a peer of his, had brought him down. Yeah, no, listen, the first thing I thought, the minute I saw the case come down and all I thought was, she's my mom's age. And I think like a lot of other Americans, the first thing I thought was, well, how would I feel if that was my mother who had, who had had to live with this shit for 40 years and then have this guy come out and talk the shit about her that he does? I mean, how would how would I feel? And I That was my contemplation of it. And look, I met E. Jean, I guess, once or twice. We had her on the podcast years ago. You and I did when we had the yeah. other podcast. But I didn't I wasn't emotionally invested in her. But I loved watching the moment where somebody who, uh, yes, she has she has great attorneys. She has some means to be able to, to to be in the fight against him. But she's not wealthy. No, no, but no, yeah, that's what I'm saying is she's not wealthy. She didn't she wasn't able to throw millions of dollars into this case. But her story was an unlock, I think, for a lot of people in this country. And I think for a lot, I hope, I hope, maybe I'm wrong. Look, I could be wrong, but I hope for a lot of other other victims of his kind of abusiveness will come out and talk about it. I hope that he will, I hope that he right now is grinding his teeth because Donald Trump is acutely aware, probably to the penny, how much money he really has. And it's not the same amount that he wants you to think. Rick Wilson, I hope you'll come back. I sleep better at night knowing my family is protected if something ever happens to me since I was able to compare plans very easily at policygenius.com. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. 
or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma. Delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style, the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now, you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. John Byrne Murdoch is a data journalist at the Financial Times. Welcome back to Fast Politics. My most haunting guest, John Byrne Murdoch. Thanks you for having me. I'm sorry to tell you, I am still not over the last interview we did, which was maybe a month ago, where we talked about American life expectancy. We're talking about something else today, but then we're going to go back into the American life expectancy conversation because as an American with a life, I don't know if it exactly got me upset as much as it is just a fascinating window into all of the many things we're doing wrong over here. Yeah. Look, I'm happy to be your sort of non-American voice on all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But so let's first talk about this piece you wrote, which is called, Is the West Talking Itself Into Decline? Really interesting. Explain to us the sort of thesis behind this. Sure. So this one sort of came out of a few thoughts I've been having recently and a few pieces I've been reading. And essentially, the way to come at this is to think about human progress over the last two, three hundred years. Specifically, the, the key point is the Industrial Revolution. So for a very long time, economic historians, uh, kind of anyone who's interested in 
human progress has been trying to think what caused the Industrial Revolution to happen when it did and where it did. So this huge event that led to rapid growth, not just in economic output, but in, in life expectancy and life satisfaction, all of those things. What caused it to happen when and where it did? The American economic historian Robert Allen has this theory that Britain's successes in commerce at the time meant that British workers had especially high wages. And the fact that the UK had a lot of coal meant that you also had cheap energy. So right. this combination of high wages and cheap energy meant that it really made a lot of sense to get into using machinery, things where, things where you need fewer people and where cheap energy was helpful. So that's the standard theory that that's why this happened when and where it did. But where this gets interesting is there's another theory from an American Israeli called Joel Mokir. Right. And his theory is that it wasn't necessarily as much about things like the cost of labor and energy. It was about culture. And it was about how people in Britain at that time were thinking about the world and their place in it and what it kind of meant to be human and what we could do as humans to change our outcomes. This sounds all very sort of hand-wavy and fuzzy, but I think it's, it's really useful to think about how revolutionary that was at that time. Right. So this was a period where societies were super religious and the main theory was that the quality of your life and, and the world around you was essentially came from God. Everything was provided by God. If you wanted to have a good life, then you had to rely, you, you would hope that God, you would, you would pray to God that that happened. And if you wanted your future, your next year, your your next decade to be better, it would again depend on sort of what was provided to you. You didn't have a huge amount of... So when when people like Francis Bacon, the British philosopher, came along and started to say, what if we actually have some input here? What if we can do things to change our outcome and to make the world a better place? What if we can try and come up with ways and use things like science and experimentation to find better ways of doing things? So it was really quite revolutionary thinking. And so Joel Mokir's theory is that maybe actually this was the key. It was the fact that in British society at that time, you had a group of people who were starting to think more about what can we do to make the world better? What can we do to make ourselves richer and to make ourselves healthier and to live longer? And, and it was that sort of culture of thinking about progress and, and betterment, which led British society at that time, British entrepreneurs, to actually start putting these things into practice. And that sparked the Industrial Revolution. So that's the sort of the big picture of where this, where this whole piece styro came from. And what I wanted to do in this piece though was to throw this forward and say, okay, well, if we if if we know or at least if we if we think that a culture that is focused on progress and improvement and experimentation can produce real tangible outcomes, can lead to more economic growth, can lead to longer life expectancy in larger populations, then what does that mean for today? And so to answer that question, I replicated this this approach from some academics recently, which which was to look at the language that people use over time. So Google has this amazing database of millions and millions of books that have been published going back hundreds of years. So all the way back from sort of the year 1500, 1600 through to the present day. And what we can do with that is we can look at the type of language that has been used over time. 
And what we see is that in the English-speaking world, but also we can expand that to the broader West. So if we look at French books and German books as well, what we see is that in those early years, the sort of 16, 1700s, in the lead up to the Industrial Revolution, you really see this shift to a culture of progress. So the language being used in books, you started getting a lot of words about the future and progress and betterment and growth and that kind of thing before the economy and life expectancy, everything took up. So it, it really supports the idea that language and culture do matter. Right. But the really interesting thing that I've then seen in the last, say, 100 years, or particularly the last 50, 60 years, is that that has actually now reversed. So in Britain, in the US, in France and Germany and so on, the, the language that we use, in, whether you know, it's measured in books, but this is really the language we use as a culture, We've stopped talking as much about progress and the future and advancing things. And we've started talking more about worries and risks and threats. And so this, for me, was super, super interesting in terms of how we think about the world at the moment and our place in it and what the future might hold. Because we have two things here. One, we have a decent bit of evidence to show that the way we talk about the future and progress as a culture actually has a beneficial impact on us today and in the future. And two, we've stopped doing that. And so that for me is just a super interesting thing to think about, both in terms of how we've got to this point over the last few decades of talking less about things getting better and talking more about things getting worse. And then two, how can we change that going forward? The sense is that the more we talk about things getting worse, the more things actually do get worse. Yeah, look, I mean, it's obviously, it's complex the way these things these things work and that causality can work both ways. Obviously, you know, if, if the world becomes worse, we're going to talk more about the world becoming worse. But the interesting thing to think about here is how much of what we talk about is about, for example, the world getting scarier and how much is the world actually getting more dangerous? Because those two things for me are quite different. Something can be dangerous, but because you don't talk about it in that way, you might not be scared by it. And similarly, something can be feel scary where it actually isn't. So I think it's useful to think about, again, the language here. And we have all sorts of data, for example, on how news headlines have got much, much more negative over the last decade. This is sort of the Fox News phenomenon. Yeah, so it, it's Fox News. But I think we, we see this kind of right across, across the political spectrum to a degree. You know, it's not necessarily always scaremongering, but if we're talking more about things getting worse or, or things that we're worried about, then that, that does show up across the board. And and yet at the same time, we know that poverty has pretty much never been lower. We know that all sorts of these things, life expectancy is is generally, certainly for most countries in the world. Except in America. There's <laughs> this question of, of why are the way we talk about the world has become so much more negative and what can we do to change that if we want to. Is the regression thing, is it tied to conservatism? That's quite hard to pick out. I think from the data I've seen, it's pretty much across the board. So this, it's, as I say, it, it can manifest in different ways. So with someone like, with, with, a, with a news organization like Fox News, this might be talking about, for example, like fears around crime all the time, or, or maybe talking um, negatively about things like immigration. But then we also see this from more liberal and progressive outlets talking much, much more about things like inequality or poverty, even when poverty has fallen and inequality by most measures has, has not risen over some time. So it's, it's not saying that the people 
using this language are deliberately trying to talk negatively. But we do tend to see, depending on how you measure it, basically this has happened right across the political spectrum. And what's happening here is that this is breeding more nihilism, right? Like this catastrophizing creates a more nihilistic culture where people are less are less interested in. I mean, again, we don't really know, but there certainly is a theory of the case that's that, right? Yeah, exactly. The things that have made society better over the years have involved a bit of risk taking. They've involved someone coming out and saying, you know what, this might not work, but I'm going to try it. And that attitude, that mindset tends to be squashed by things like worry and, and stress and fear. So that's the theory here that as, as people start to worry more, and especially as you say, when it gets to the level of nihilism of just thinking, well, you know, we're all screwed, then that is that can be really paralyzing. And so... So the key thing here is, well, how can we, how can we change that? You know, climate change is, is a good example where if, if, you are, if you want to help make the world more resilient and help reduce our impact on the planet, then if you're currently thinking, well, you know, we're all screwed, it's all over, by the, our kids are going to have no world to, to look into, then that does not empower you to make change. That makes you almost lean back. So it's that question of, of how we can fix that. Climate change is such a good example because it's like here we have a problem that is enormous and cataclysmic, but is also, you know, there are some things to be hopeful about and it keeps shifting like the ozone layer, which growing up in the 80s and 90s was like the focus is sort of regenerating. So we're in a race against temperature, but there are reasons to be optimistic about something that was really presented to me as a young child as cataclysmic. So I do think there's real reason to not be nihilistic and to really take optimism where we can get it. Yeah, 100%. I think the, the, the ozone example is a great one. I mean, another one is acid rain. So like when I was in school, we talked about acid rain all the time. And then because of uh, technology is getting much cleaner and some regulations coming in, acid rain is basically not a thing anymore. And it's the same in all sorts of things. Like lots of measures of air pollution show that that's now at least not getting worse, even though it's perhaps not quite getting better yet. And all of the things that have allowed us as a species to have less impact on society have come from new technologies, cleaner technologies, more efficient technologies, not from you know people just deciding, well, I'm going to eat less or I'm going to do less. And so, so basically, to the extent that we are tackling climate change, it's coming from that, that, that focus on growth and progress. A brilliant guest you should get on, on your show is a, a woman called Hannah Ritchie, who's just, just got a book out on, on all of this in terms of, the cli of climate change. But, but yeah, it basically, if we care about a problem and we want to fix that problem, then the best way of doing that is to focus on progress and advancing and, and what we can do more and better. Yeah. One last thing about the thing we just talked about is the West talking itself into decline. The larger thesis here is that the more negative your news is, the more it creates a cycle of negativity that leads to inactivity, that leads to less good outcomes. Exactly. So let's talk about this life expectancy thing, because I just want you to go back and explain to us the reason why Americans are more likely to die at every age. Yeah, it's, it's a big question, but it's a, as you say, it just an incredibly important thing for us to talk about. And basically, I, th I think a huge part of this, the, a huge and absolutely enormous part of this that I think 
people are starting to get their heads around, but it's still understated, is drugs, it is opioids, and in particular, fentanyl. So I think when people think about life expectancy, they tend to imagine two things. One, they they think about older people, because if, if you know that life expectancy is in, say, the 70s or 80s, then you're the, the temptation is to think, well, you know, why is someone dying age 75 instead of 78, for example? And the second thing is that people think about the healthcare system. Because again, they're thinking, well, you know, we know that the American healthcare system is is more expensive. Fewer people have access to it. And, and therefore, could that explain what's happening here? And I think, you know, neither of those things are wrong, but I think they both divert attention from, from where the bulk of this is really happening. So if we start with the age, the age part of this, when we look at what the, the, the chances of Americans dying in any given year, if you look at the chance of someone who is already 75 years old dying before they reach the age of like 80 or 85 or 90, that looks pretty much the same in America as it does in Canada and England and Wales and France, Germany, all these other countries. So this is not really about older people dying slightly earlier uh, in the US than elsewhere. Whereas if you look at someone who is 10 years old or five years old, and you look at the chance of them living to reach, say, 30 or 40, and you look at that in the US versus elsewhere, there's an absolutely enormous gap. So about one in 25 American five-year-olds will not live to reach 40 years old. So imagine like a classroom, like a five-year-old, a kindergarten class, one child in that class on average in the US will not live to be 40. And that's just absolutely astonishing. Like in all of these other rich countries, that's about one in a hundred. And, you know, that is tragic enough, but one in 25 is astonishing. So the big difference, the big thing that causes US life expectancy to be lower is far more people dying at age 20 or 25 or 30 or 35. And even though those ages are really low, when you have huge amounts of people dying at those ages, it can pull down the whole number. Because when one child dies, there are parents affected and grandparents affected and deaths of despair and cultures affected. I mean, and I'm not even talking about like you lose a teenager, that's a loss for a community. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. But but so it's, it's a big impact socially like that. But even just in terms of numbers, if someone dies at age 20, instead of instead of living to be 80, that has a way bigger impact on life expectancy than like 20 people dying at 75 instead of like 77. So the big thing that pulls down US life expectancy is all of these people who die in their 20s and 30s. And of course, all of those people in their 20s and 30s, this comes on to the second part of this being actually less about the healthcare system than people think. These are not people who are dying because they're unable to get access to medical attention to healthcare. These are people who are dying because they've got a gunshot wound or they've had a fentanyl overdose, or perhaps they've been hit by a car. So there is very little at this point that the healthcare system can actually do for these people, even if they do get that far. These are usually people who have simply been killed. And again, this is not to say that access to healthcare is not important. It's not to say that we shouldn't, as a society and as, as interested people, continue to, to try and support politicians who are going to increase healthcare coverage. But it's to say that when you really think about what is dramatically different between America and other countries in the West, it is people dying at young ages from external injuries, homicide, suicide, guns, cars, these kinds of things, and simply not being able to benefit from healthcare access even if they had it because they've been killed already. So that is what makes US life expectancy so low. And that is why US life expectancy has gone backwards so much in the last five to 10 years. It's not that 
loads of 75-year-olds have started dying slightly early. It's the, the number of 20 and 30-year-olds dying in America has absolutely rocketed, especially due to fentanyl. Thank you, John. So interesting. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Nick Confessori is a political investigations reporter at The New York Times. Welcome to Fast Politics, Nick. Good to be here, Molly. Very excited to have you. This piece is a banger. Okay, so the title of the piece is America is Under Attack Inside the Anti-DEI Crusade. Can you talk us through how this gets written a little bit? Sure. I mean, I came into this story partly through some reporting on Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. I did a story last summer about how he had become kind of the education governor, how he had built so much of his agenda as governor and then as a presidential candidate around this idea of battling woke forces, left-wing forces in education, K-12 and college. I feel like education should go in quotes. Well, listen, a governor has a lot of power over schools, certainly in Florida. And he did a lot to change what could be taught, how it could be taught, what teachers could do. He was very aggressive about it. And it was very popular to a certain extent in Florida. And it became his resume to be a top tier presidential candidate. And so I was trying to find out more about his work with outside education experts and activists on the right, Moms for Liberty, people at Hilldale College, uh, which is a conservative institution, and of course the Claremont Institute, because the Claremont people had really been front and center in his events. I mean, he had a gathering for donors last winter in Florida, where he essentially like gave a stage to four people from the Claremont Institute, which is in California, and said, tell us how to beat woke in America. And they did a whole panel for donors. So I was looking for emails and documents that would shed a little bit of light on the role of these outside people in his policymaking. And I got some things for the DeSantis piece, but it turned out that I was on to more of a trove of information about not just Florida, but a whole loose network of activists and advocates around the country that Claremont was kind of at the center of that were behind a lot of these efforts to ban, quote unquote, DEI in higher education. So, yeah, I mean, it's wild stuff. So I would love like a family tree here to sort of talk us through how these networks interact with each other. The Claremont Institute was founded by acolytes of the conservative thinker Leo Strauss. And over the years, they had been kind of iconoclastic and sort of in opposition to mainstream conservatism. They thought that mainstream Republican institutions, which they called Conservatism Inc., were kind of complicit with a liberal regime that was taking down the country. And when Trump came to power, they found a real dovetailing between the Trump movement and their own ideas and thinking about American politics and culture. And a big part of their beliefs is that higher education is kind of the test bed for the liberal regime. That's where uh, the left you know, controls people's thinking, breeds future liberals, turns the educated class and the leadership class into basically anti-American people. And of course, this kind of sentiment overlaps with a broader set of gripes and worries on the right. And there isn't any shortage of conservatives who think that colleges are terrible and, and everyone there is liberal and kids are learning crazy things. But what happened was that in the aftermath of Black Lives Matters and the crazy summer of 2020, they really felt 
on the defensive. A lot of conservatives felt on the defensive about the new movement for racial justice and some of its offshoots in academia, in schools, in workplaces. And so this group at Claremont said, okay, we have to take the fight. We have to fight back against this. And how are we going to do it? We're going to go after the colleges, the root of all evil. And they scrounged up contributions from different foundations. Some of them you may have heard of, some not. A lot of the normal big funders on the right, some smaller family foundations that aren't household names. There are one or two family foundations here, right? It's amazing to me. We see a lot of the Taub Family Foundation. That was one that was listed in the documents as a foundation that they had applied for funding from. The Searle Freedom Trust, which is now based in Wisconsin, was a group that they did get money for some projects on. And these are foundations in the control of families who tend to be on the right. And there's obviously, I'm sure as you know, in that period and, and even now, there was just a lot of worry and anger of what was happening on college campuses. So I think they found a ready audience when they said, look, we actually have the solution here. And their strategy was simple. Let's do a bunch of reports in conjunction with state think tanks. Let's identify, basically through Googling, by the right. way, let's identify everybody who has DEI in their title. We'll write up a report that says DEI is terrible and what equity actually means is this and what diversity actually means is this. It's anti-white, it's, it's racialism, it's, it's reverse racism. Here are all the people who do that stuff at this school. Here's the report. Hand it to lawmakers and push them to basically put those programs on the chopping block. And that's kind of where you get some of these wholesale bans on DEI offices, the most sweeping course are in Florida and Texas. But they've actually said, look, you can't have offices and personnel devoted to these things anymore at public universities. They've defunded them. And they believe that by doing this, they can really reshape higher education. To be what? Well, that's a really good question. You know, in earlier years among mainstream conservatives, you saw a big push for what's called institutional neutrality. You've probably heard of the Chicago principles, right? And this was an idea that the administrations of universities should put their finger on the scale of what beliefs are okay. What are like okay arguments and ideas? The administration should just create an atmosphere where scholars and students have intellectual freedom to explore the world and pursue knowledge. And the most common argument on the right was, look, can we go back to a state of more neutrality? Can we stop having, you know, the DEI dean cancel a talk by a conservative because it made some people upset? Can we go back to a place where everybody gets to say what they want and study what they want and do scholarship and let the best ideas win out? That was the old idea. But the Claremont people belong to a different school of thought. Chris Rufo, I think, is also in the school of thought. They come out of the more kind of traditional understanding of education, its purpose. And in their minds, academic freedom is a means to an end. It's not worth much if it doesn't get you to the right kind of society. And I think what's interesting is that this vision of education where academic freedom really has to be subordinated to creating the right kind of country is actually something they have in, in common with some people on the left, right? who say that, look, academic you know, freedom is fine and good, but it's not good if it hurts the wrong people, if it bothers the wrong people, if these ideas create an atmosphere that makes certain people feel unwelcome. And so they kind of have that in common. And then in the minimalism is an older tradition on the left and the right of let's have real academic freedom, a real exchange of ideas. But the Claremont people basically don't want to get back to a place of neutrality. They actually want to replace what they think of as the reigning ideology on campuses with their politics. And that's in the emails I got. They say, look, our, and you even find emails from 
the chairman of Claremont, Tom Klingenstein, complaining about the way that most conservatives opposed CRT. And he was saying, we're not trying to get politics out of the university. We're trying to get our politics into the university. Can you do like two seconds on Christopher Rufo, just for people who are not as terminally in this as we are? Chris Rufo is a conservative activist and documentarian and journalist who was a Claremont scholar back in the day. He was kind of part of their crowd, now is at the Manhattan Institute. And he's the guy who popularized critical race theory as the kind of catch-all term for stuff conservatives didn't like that liberals did about race and speech. That was a very successful campaign because he got politicians around the country to start outlawing critical race theory, which, you know, is a fairly abstruse academic framework that basically tries to look at how racism can be embedded in seemingly neutral laws or institutions. And I think in the conservative imagination, critical race theory is kind of embedded in so many disciplines that it's almost like a fundamental part of higher education. I think that's kind of overdrawn. But as political branding, they're very successful in saying you cannot teach critical race theory, which is something most people don't actually learn in college. But what's interesting in, in the story is around the time that Rufo was popularizing CRT as this kind of bugaboo, the Claremont people were struggling to figure out what catch-all term that they wanted to use. And they kept playing around with different things. And in the emails, they talk about how what they really oppose is the regime of anti-discrimination. But you can't say that because it's a sacred cow. People think it's bad to discriminate, and they aren't receptive to the bigger Claremont argument that anti-discrimination rules create this whole downstream effect of kind of rigid DEI trainings and things at schools and workplaces. And so they said, what else can we call it? And how can we stigmatize this stuff? <laughs> and sometimes they called it critical social justice education, and sometimes critical social justice. And then within you know, 18 months or two years of this project unfolding, they were like, no, let's call it DEI. And they decided that was the most effective brand for kind of all the stuff that they didn't like. And the reason I'm saying stuff, which is not a very journalistic word, Molly, is it's actually pretty hard to put your finger in any of these conversations and arguments about exactly what we're talking about when we talk about DEI, because it encompasses this huge range of policies and practices that probably vary a lot in how reasonable people think they are. And so DEI has become this catch-all term for everything from a you know, minority recruitment program for first-generation college students to affirmative action. But they decided at one point, DEI was the way to go to kind of counterbrand and stigmatize these liberal ideas. Right. It's so interesting in a way because it is like you think about the idea of like being anti-discrimination sounds like something that would be very hard to, in the modern world we live in, be anti, right? Anti-anti-discrimination seems like, I mean, at least, you know, I live in a blue city and a blue state, but I mean, that seems insane to me. But the way they cooked it up is sort of, I guess, the the thinking was that would be more palatable on the right. You know, Molly, it's interesting because they, they, they basically argue that once you have a set of laws that say you can't discriminate, and this is their argument, you inevitably get to the Abram Kennedy version or the idea of anti-racism, that if you say you can't discriminate, then in their view, inevitably, you end up with processes and rules that say that if there is any difference in outcome among racial groups, it's because of racism. And therefore, 
you've got to flatten out those differences and mandate different outcomes. And that's what they hate the most, equity, right? This idea of equity, that you have to produce similar outcomes somehow. But it's built on the supposition that the white guys who get the job are actually the most qualified and not that the system is inherently beneficiary to them. They're inherently the beneficiaries. I think it's even deeper than that. Their argument, and this is in the emails, is that discrepancies in outcome is just not a problem. Their argument, their belief is that and this is in one of the emails, blacks will be overrepresented in some spheres, whites in others, Asians in still others. I'm quoting loosely from an email from Scott Yeanor, who was the head of this project for Claremont, uh, to Tom Klingenstein, the Claremont chairman. They believe that these are not really areas of social concern, that these differences are normal and natural, and we shouldn't worry about it. And that in trying to worry about it and fix it, we create a terrible society. When you saw these emails, were you, some of them are so blatantly disgusting. I mean, like the one where she complains about nannies. It's hard to read these emails and not think that a lot of these people are racist. Well, that one email you're talking about is from Heather McDonald, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute here in New York. She was not formally part of the Claremont program or campaign, but she corresponded frequently with the personnel of Claremont who were most involved. And so we saw a lot of banter between them. And, you know, I obviously was struck by that email as well, where she basically castigated working women who have nannies uh, from what Heather McDonald called the low IQ third world, and basically that they're bad mothers for outsourcing their childcare to those caregivers. And you know, the email, in the email, McDonald says that she was walking around her neighborhood in Manhattan and saw the nannies, and this is what she thought. And a friend of mine was joking, that's what you thought? Like, that was your first thought? <laughs> that there was this huge social problem of, of female lawyers outsourcing their child rearing to people with low IQs? And that was your first thought? But I guess it was, or at least one of her first thoughts. You also see this really pronounced hostility to gay people. Yeah. And one thing that was a little surprising to me in the reporting, I kind of expected to find a lot of traffic and email about trans uh, healthcare trans issues. And maybe it was because I wasn't uh, searching for the right documents in my document requests. But there was very little of that. There was a lot of talking about gay people and gay men in particular. Right. And Peter Thiel. They were gossiping about Peter Thiel, who had a minor scandal, I guess you could call it. That's what they call it. Is that him, his husband falling out the window? I don't have the details right in front of me, but there was a boyfriend, I believe, who committed suicide. Not the husband. So the husband was OK, but the boyfriend died. There was a confrontation between the uh, Teal's husband and a uh, boyfriend and the boyfriend committed suicide, I believe. Uh, to look at the story again. But, you know, they were gossiping about that. But their gossip was, oh, it's so tawdry that he had an affair. And that's just the way of gays to have to have these affairs because of, uh, quote, testosterone unchecked by female modesty. That was again from Heather McDonald. But you also see emails and, and discussions with Scott Yano or Claremont where they're talking about essentially his belief that there can't be a healthy society until homosexuality is re-stigmatized, until gay people are back in the closet. I think we're living in an odd era, Molly. Like on the one hand, gay marriage is legal. On the other hand, it's, it's under attack again. This kind of fairly new right is under attack and there is a backlash in many dimensions. I guess it was naive of me, but I was surprised to read that. I was a little surprised. The pure dislike and the really throwback kind of attitude but, but kind of more than that, this this fear that public acceptance of homosexuality was going to lead to social ruin, that it was somehow undermining Western civilization. That's how they think about it. 
Yeah. Because they suck. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. It's great to be with you. And now your moment of fuckery. Rick Wilson, here we are, you and I. What is your moment of fuckery? My moment of fuckery this week is Donald Trump and Greg Abbott and this bullshit on the border where they have a one-mile section of border that they've declared to be the Berlin (laughs) Wall of Greg Abbott's version of Berlin, and they're pretending this is some great national crisis. They won't pass an immigration bill because they want it for a political issue. They're not doing anything on the border right now with this National Guard group, except for, you know, trying to get, you know, Fox stories over and over again of just how dangerous the the border caravans are. And the final element of the fuckery is all these other Republican governors saying, well, I'm going to send my National Guard. And, and, you know, DeSantis is sending his own, like, personal shock troop army that he formed a couple years ago, the Florida Guard, as I call it, the Ronstoffel. You know, they're going to all send them down there and they're going to they're going to guard the border. What they're saying is the Trump Supreme Court, who said we can't do this, we're going to ignore them on this one and keep throwing kids uh, into barbed wire in an ice cold river. Good luck, guys. Good fucking luck. My moment of fuckery is this, that this weekend, and you and I, since we're internet people, you and I, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. This weekend, while Donald Trump Finally, Judge Kaplan found a number of which Donald Trump can which shut him has the fuck decided, up. Right, is too expensive for defamation. All of Donald Trump's allies, all of those internet people, you know, who may or may not even live in this country, those guys who run, you know, Go News One Two Three and yeah, MAGA right. World, you know, and Breitbart, and also well, not, let us not forget. I don't even want to say their names because I don't want to elevate them. Right. Those guys spend. Spent the weekend just trying to find trash on Eugene Carroll, going through every internet thing they could find, every doc. Yep. Every article she's ever written, trying to find one moment where she wasn't exactly. Every time she said she liked sex, they've decided that that is now an excuse that a man can violate her. Here's the deal, guys. That's not how any of this works. Not how any of this works. Until they are able to control this country, which is their dream, we still have rules and laws against what you can do to people, even if they like sex. And for that, those misogynistic assholes are my moment of fuckery. Molly, can I add a small supplementary moment of fuckery? Yes. I think this is one that I I, I think America really needs to be prepared for. This weekend was the first weekend of the release of Ben Shapiro's rap song. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you, it's in the in the Apocrypha, locked in a secret Vatican library, is a a prophecy that when Ben Shapiro's rap career begins, it is the end of the earth as we know it. And the apocalypse is near. (laughs) I just want to say those words together one more time. Ben Shapiro's rap career. I thought it was satire when I saw it first. Apparently, no. No. So, anyway, thanks for having me. You're the best. That was so good. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination, so pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.